Financial residency podcasts are brought to you this week by weatherbyhealthcare.com. Just as the right advice helps you thrive financially, the right support team allows you to excel professionally. Weatherby Healthcare's locums experts will match you with the best jobs, prepare you for success, and provide 24-7 support. The bottom line is that working locums with Weatherby helps you earn more money and take better control of your career. If that sounds like music to your ears, head over to weatherbyhealthcare.com payday to get started. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. This is your host, Tammy Krause, and I'd like to welcome back John Apino. Hey, John, how are you? Oh, as always, Tammy, I'm good. Thank you for having us on. We love to do these. And of course, our busy season is starting now. So we're starting to get busy and our schedule's full, but we always make time for the crew over at Financial Residence. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, John, you're the host of Coffee and Contracts and also the owner of Contract Diagnostics. So I'm sure our audience is familiar with you, but I always like to just remind them who you are and all of you know your credentials and just how good you've been to us over the years trying to help people get the right information that they need. Yeah, it's I mean, well, again, we love to teach. That's why we started this company over 12 years ago already. We have a company, Contract Diagnostics, that is, it's so simple, just not easy what we do. We help physicians understand their contracts, employment contracts. And so, you know, we get the privilege of working with folks going into private practices and large hospitals and independent contractor deals. Then we get to explain how clear their agreement is. And if it's not clear, what they could do to clarify and maybe give them some negotiating tips from time to time. And we have a ton of fun doing this. So, you know, I like to say my job is simple, not easy, which physicians, you know, I mean, you could be general practice, of course, but, you know, most physicians, they wear the hat of a physician and they are very good at that. But maybe they're not as good at other things like contracts. And that's what <laughs> we're here for. You know, we're, we're really good at contracts, but I'm not good at giving medical advice or care. So I go to the physicians for those. So we're their specialists on their contracts whenever they need help with terms or ideas or suggestions or compensation ideas. That's what we're here for. So, But we love doing these sessions with you because it's another platform that we get to share what we've learned over you know, 12 plus years of doing this work. So, Well, thanks for coming back. I was going to bring you on today and just talk about you know, like how mergers and consolidations and private equity takeovers have affected physicians. Have you seen a lot of that come up you know, time and time again in your contracts with physicians? Yeah, you know, we, it's one of those things where, you know, we've all seen over, I don't know, 20 years of, I mean, of just being in medicine, you know, that there's been consolidation for a long time, which is no different than, you know, consolidation of social media companies as the big players buy the small ones or consolidations of beverage, beverage makers as, you know, Coke buys, you know, whatever product and, and Pepsi buys whatever product. So, it's the same thing in healthcare where larger an organization gets, the better economies of scale they typically have. And so, you know, what might cost them a million dollars in a smaller organization might cost them 900000 in a larger organization. And if that, you know, investment, if you will, still spits off the same return, your return gets better as, you know, you get more efficient expenses and costs and economies and and everything else. So we've seen consolidation in every industry for a long, long time. Medicine, of course, being one of those. So it ends up inevitably almost touching every physician at some point in their career, whether they're part of a merger themselves as an employee, whether 
They're fearful of the private practice they work for getting bought or merging with another organization or getting purchased by private equity. Or again, maybe it just impacts somebody that they know that they went training with. But it's one of those things that inevitably I feel is going to impact every physician. It impacted my mom. And it was you know forever ago, it seems like, when they had their little private clinic with some internists in there. And you know they were purchased, acquired, affiliated, whatever word you want to use by, you know, one of the larger organizations in the state, which was, you know, a 45 minute drive away. And they were what was considered a successful outreach clinic for this large company. So they affiliated with them thinking it might benefit in many ways with budgeting and resources. And we can talk about it if you'd like, but there's a lot of ways that that impacts in a good way and in a bad way, uh, each individual physician in a practice as medicine consolidates like that, and I believe will continue to over time. Let's start with talking about that small practice. I know I've got some friends that have two or three physician practices, and they've mentioned how difficult it is to negotiate with Medicare and insurance companies and get the reimbursement to keep them successful. In that type of case, is it more beneficial to partner with you know, a bigger hospital organization or even be acquired by that organization so that they can remain solvent? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's numerous benefits, you know, I mean, it's, if I'm a small business and I'm issuing Medicare, I'm sorry, medical benefits and 401k plan, just regular benefits to my employees, it's quite expensive. But if I'm an organization with 5,000 employees and I'm negotiating with say Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas to provide health insurance to my 5,000 employees, I get a much better deal than if I'm shopping on the open market for three employees, you know. So there's big benefits to things and items like that. There's potential tax benefits to a corporation as a whole. If there's a merger or an acquisition, whether it's something at state level or otherwise, there could be financial incentives to physicians for, quote, selling and getting stock or buyouts if it's a private practice. But you know, there's many benefits. And I think to your point, I mean, is one of them better negotiation ability with payers? And yes, because instead of you representing three colleagues, you're now part of a larger whole. And you know, whether you whether you're, you know, three orthopedic physicians or 25 orthopedic physicians negotiating for patients in a certain defined geographic area, you become more powerful in those negotiations and your negotiating capital, if you will, increases significantly. Same thing with other rates, same thing with private insurance, same thing with malpractice insurance. So, you know, sometimes you are small enough, you just have to go to the open market and buy a plan. But if you're big enough, you might be able to have like a captive or your own self-insurance plan, or you might be able to package it with, you know, a slot policy, which means a large organization doesn't have to spend, you know, 20 grand a year to get to get coverage per physician. They can do like more of like a bulk buy for 100 physicians or 20 physicians. It's much different. So yeah, tons and tons of benefits as far as creating economies of scale and buying some certain costs down or better negotiating. But it's not always all sunshine and rainbow, as they say. You know, sometimes there's challenges to those things as well that directly hit the physician. Yeah, let's talk about the disadvantages. Obviously, you lose the autonomy, you know, of doing what you and your two partners want to do. Can you talk about some of the other disadvantages that might be involved? One of the things that I hear is that whether it's an acquisition or a merger or dotted line or an affiliation or whatever term is used for that particular deal, a lot of times I hear that the employee just kind of lets them be for one year or for two years. And they don't mess with them. They say, look, we think it's a successful practice and we don't want to 
poke them or mess with them. But, and they, of course, they don't want people to regret the decision to affiliate the merge with the, with the other larger entity. And then after one year or two years is when they kind of start coming in and they maybe make some requests on how you should do certain charting or, you know, certain things that they're looking for in terms of, you know, who they'd like you to treat and do what type of procedure. Of course, not dictating care, but maybe giving you more guidance on your profit and loss as a physician, which maybe you didn't deal with before because you were just there for a shift or you're a private practitioner and you just want to do what's best for your patient to not worry about revenue expenses, you know, or at least the revenue portion of it with how you're coding and how you're billing and those types of things. And so sometimes the quote business side of medicine can get more intricate and involved, which is maybe some of the things that directly negatively impact a physician. Like you said, you may lose autonomy. So maybe now you get to you know have a Thursday night urgent care if you'd like, because you own the practice and you can do what you'd like, but maybe they want to add a Saturday one and they're not going to ask you if you'd like to, they're going to tell you that they'd like you to. Maybe you generally like to give your nurse a 10% raise every year, but they don't want to do that because it's not fair to other nurses. So they only want to give a 4% raise. There could be small things like that. There could be like negative things about your, like your benefits. So maybe, you know, you give all of your staff six weeks, but their standard policy for nursing is four weeks. So how do they change that for your staff as well? It may be the same for you. Maybe as a private practitioner or a 1099 contractor or however you have your group set up, there might be something that you have as far as like a cash balance plan or a captive insurance plan or a profit sharing plan that allows you to pay less taxes and save more pre-tax money that you don't have to worry about paying taxes on. And your new entity may just offer a 401k. All you can do is put 19500 into a 401k, which means you're paying more on taxes. Those are things that might impact negatively a physician as well. There could be tax deductions that you're getting currently as an owner or a different entity in the group that you wouldn't get as a W-2 employee of a hospital. So maybe you're able to charge back certain business expenses that you might use partly for business and partly for personal. And some of those tax write-offs might be gone. Again, if you're in a private entity and you're going and affiliating with an organization, those are some of the other benefits that you might lose. It also might be something simple like changing electronic records which I know you physicians love. So oh. <laughs> I'm so don't want to do this. And I'm now trained on this one system. And now this entity uses this brand and they're not going to change the one for you. So you have to learn a new system, which means you're inefficient for a little while anyways. Yeah, we're doing that at my scratch. hospital in March. Oh. I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> no, but those are, again, another potential negative effect on you not getting to choose something like your electronic health system, which when you're by yourself or with a smaller group or different MSG, you can decide which one you're going to have. So maybe they dictate which one and it might not be the one that you want. So there's lots of kind of downstream negative things that can, you know, maybe be balanced or maybe outweigh the positive things. It just all depends on your perspective with how you look at the deal. But they're generally not like risk averse. I mean, there's, you know, just with any deal, there's always, you know, benefits and positives and negatives. And then there's just things that are straight up risk. You know, they're not good or bad. They're just potential risks on the deal, depending if you want to be around for two years or for 20 years, if you're going to retire soon or, or take off. Those things can all vary as much as well. What about from the employer perspective? Other than having a bigger pool of physicians, how do they benefit from all of these mergers and acquisitions that, you know, hospitals have been doing for the last 20 years? 
Yeah. You know, interesting question. Sometimes, you know, they might create more of a capture in a geographical area. You know, to my mother's clinic, for example, maybe they they want to capture, they want to capture a more specialist care from an area, but, you know, they don't want to send a specialist up to a certain area. So they can acquire or affiliate with a clinic, primary care or an internal medicine clinic, you know, and they can provide maybe a specialist inside the clinic once a week or once a month, depending on how it goes. Maybe those physicians will just decide to change their referral patterns. You know, maybe they refer everybody to the town 30 minutes away, but maybe there's three systems. Maybe now that they're affiliated with one system and the electronic records are the same, they know the specialists more, maybe they come up there, they've come and met them and they feel comfortable referring their patients to that new specialist. Maybe the referral patterns of the physicians change which may or may not be, you know, something that the hospital expects and wants, you know, you know, but that would be one of those things where a hospital would directly benefit if not only can they, they get to add more patient visits, which allows them more negotiating capacity so they can negotiate higher rates, but it also allows them more access to referring physicians, more access to data, right? How many of our patients have diabetes? How much Maybe we should market a separate product to them. Maybe they have, I've seen some organizations have, you know, different classes that they can either provide for free or they can sell to the patients. So it gives them more data, more ways to do more sell, more throughput. It might even give them more access to fundraising if they're like a nonprofit, you know, and they're raising money for a new building or something, being in a community, showing that they're established. It may allow the facility to branch out and build new buildings, you know, depending on how they're structured as an organization. They may or may not want to, you know, spread out and have more real estate holdings. So there's a lot of other great benefits to a hospital for why they would want to. A lot of hospitals, though, Tammy, they lose money on like smaller private practices for general primary care. So, you know, they may come in, they may help out with a family practice clinic. They, by the time they offer salaries and retention bonuses and benefits and update to the clinic, I think they might lose money on that practice, at least for a handful of years. But I think they expect it as long as they break even or even lose a little bit of money, that's okay. So long as they're seeing what they expect to be a positive impact on their bottom line, which again, might be measured not by direct referrals, because of course, that would be inappropriate to say, we're going to give you a salary of this. And we expect that you refer all of your neurology patients to us. But there might be a general benefit that they would expect to see with some of their specials becoming more busy with a change or an update in referral patterns. So that makes sense. there's lots of benefits to the hospital, but again, it's not without risk as well. You know, they have to hire more administrators, which we all know systems love to do and pay them all the money that they make. So now they've got risk on the top of it as well. Not only just integrating the practice, but what if the patients don't stick around because they don't want to come with a new entity or what if revenue falls? What if physicians end up taking off and you know, they thought they were acquiring a practice of 10 physicians, but then four leave. Now they only have six and maybe now that's not good. So there's also more risk to the hospital in some situations, which is why we sometimes see in those contracts, if they're going to affiliate with somebody or even in the instance of a private equity acquisition um, of a private practice, we'll see retention structures put in place where physicians can't leave. You know, so they might give them a payout, but they can't leave for four years. Or in the instance of private equity, we might see something that says your ophthalmology practice, I'm going to make it up, averages a million dollars of revenue per physician. Over the next five years, you agree to continue to maintain the average of this much. So you can't just quote, sell out and then sit around and do nothing and then retire and 
you know, go buy an island, island with all the money that they gave you. So they, <laughs> they put things in there as well that maybe makes it so you can't leave or you shouldn't leave or it'd be cost prohibitive for you to start to slack and change your work ethic and everything else. So there's lots of ways that they can kind of help balance the risk, which is good for them to do, but of course, important for the physicians to know who are in those situations. Also important for the physicians who are in a situation where they're going to look at joining a private practice. That's super important as well. Do you help these, you know, smaller practices or medium, large size practices, whatever, navigate this, you know, this buyout by hospitals or private equity firms? Is that something that contract diagnostics also can help with? Absolutely. It depends on the deal, of course, you know, some private equity deals are very intricate. They have real estate holdings and accounts receivable purchases and buy sell agreements. There's all kinds of things that we would most likely refer to you know, attorney in-house who are a consulting firm. So there might be a place that we would say a state-based attorney would be a better fit, but we can always provide a guidance on you know, ways to look at something from a physician's perspective. You know, but you know, one thing that we deal with a lot, Tammy, is we'll talk to a physician who's private, who's a, who wants to join a private practice. You know, of course, I'm curious as they say, well, John, I'm going to join this practice and I'm going to be a partner in two years. Mm-hmm. And I'm always concerned with what if they sell the practice? Then like, you're not a partner. So you know, maybe like, for example, you're an orthopedic surgeon. You can go to a hospital and make 600 grand as a salary, or you go to a private practice and make 300. And but in the private years, practice, you buy into yeah, the practice. two years, you make, yeah, maybe you're making $2 million a year, depending on the situation, right? Again, that's a lot. That's a big difference. 300 grand versus 600 grand, big difference over two years. 2 million for the next 15 years or 20 years or more is a big difference than 750 or 800 if you're producing well as an orthopedic surgeon. So it's all different and relative. And so again, if I'm talking to a physician who is looking at transitioning to a private practice and you know they say, look, they're adamant, they're not going to sell. Of course, I want the physician to have that discussion with the practice. Have you been approached by private equity? If so, what happened? If you have not been, if you are, what would you say? Now, most private practices will give you this, you know, well, I would never sell out. We're so committed to staying private, which is maybe true. You know, you're 60, I'm going to work for four more years. I've got a, I've got an asset, which is my practice, right? Just like I have a house. I don't need a big house anymore. I'm going to sell my house and downsize. Maybe you have a practice. It's your biggest asset and you're ready to walk away and take the profits from all the hard work that you've been doing for the past 30 years. So we might see an acquisition. Even if they said they weren't going to, depending on the valuation, it can be very lucrative for the owners of the practice. And again, that might leave the physician out in the cold. So some things that we've had, that we've guided the physician on requesting put in the agreement are things like, you know, if the practice does sell, they will be a partner 30 days before, or they'll inform the physician if there's talks and they're approached by private equity within 90 days of the time that they're approached. We were talking to one ophthalmologist, maybe like a like a retina surgeon, I think. And you know, he had said, John, they're adamant, they're never gonna sell. I'm like, and it's a single private practice guy. And I said, Well, you know, you could just ask him to put in the contract to give you a million bucks if he sells. Kind of like calls bluff, you know. Mm-hmm. And the physician's like, I'm so adamant, I'll make it two million. I thought it was <laughs> kind of cool, right? Like the physician's so adamant that it's not gonna happen. I'm so adamant that I'll give you twice what you asked for if it does. Because he knew that it wouldn't. But again, it gave me confidence in the physician who was being honest with our client as if I've never planned to sell, period. Versus I'm going to tell you I'm not, but if someone offers me a bunch of money, I might say yes. 
So again, going back and forth from good thing, bad thing, there's really no good thing, bad thing. It might be the best thing for a practice. Maybe someone listening is a private practitioner and they do want to sell an affiliate before they retire. You know, so it can be very beneficial to some people, but it might not be to others. And it's important to look at the situation with eyes wide open, no matter which side you're sitting on. If you're, I'm a private practice physician owner thinking about doing this, I'm a part of a MSG that might affiliate in a more formal way with a hospital or an entity, you know, or I'm a physician looking at signing a contract with somebody and I don't want them to merge. Knowing that a lot of contracts, you know, have something called assignability, in which case if they're sold, your contract is an asset, no difference than the the lease contract they have for the ultrasound machine or the old newsweeks they have in the waiting room. It's an asset to the purchasing entity. And those things are generally turned over to the purchasing entity. If I'm buying your practice, I would buy everything that's an asset, which includes the fixtures, the furniture, the equipment, the people, if you will, the contracts that you have. Most of the time, if there is an acquisition, that physician or group just ends up going under the new entity with the same terms that, of course, could be renegotiated as the new employer may have a new idea of what they want to do for compensation. That brings up an interesting point. So let's say I'm an employee of that, you know, smaller group and we do get acquired by a hospital. If I had a non-compete initially with the group that I signed on with, would that non-compete still be enforceable? You know, if a hospital bought out my practice? Well, of course, everything depends on the terms of the contract. And when you look, when you ask things like enforceability of non-competes, of course, we'd say, make sure you consult with a local attorney. In general, the terms of the contract that the physician is under transfers over to the entity that is acquiring the group. Again, there might be 90-day no-cause terminations, meaning they're terminating the agreement and they're going to renegotiate. Or maybe they do say, look, we're going to keep everything the same. We're just going to modify Exhibit A compensation. What we have seen, we've even seen, look, we're going to, you know, we're trashing your contract. We own it. We're trashing it. And we're issuing new contracts and everyone has until Friday to sign. <laughs> I love you know, those. We've seen that too. <laughs> so again, there's no like right or wrong consistency, if you will. I guess it's just all over the map. But most of the time, all of the terms would be assigned, if you will, to the new entity. That new entity may accept them as is, may renegotiate, or may utilize the terms of the agreement to terminate the contract. Again, all depending on how each individual contract is worded. It may say something like the contract terminates immediately on the sale or acquisition. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, if there is an acquisition, your contract's over the day of. So again, it's all important to understand all the nuances of everyone's contract, whether you're signing your first one or your fifth one, to know what happens in what situations. Well, let's pivot. We've kind of talked about you know takeovers and mergers, acquisitions, but what about, say, you're an employee of a hospital and they decide to let a group of people go and outsource for that service, you know, whether that be a hospitalist group or an ER yeah. group. Do you come Anesthesia, across that very much? Yes, yeah, exactly. Laborists. Yeah. We see it. Yes. Not as much as we do just general. I have a contract. Can you look at it? But we okay. do see situations where a facility will say, you know, we feel like we can either save money or have less headache or have better care or still in the blank if we're not employing these people. And so they may issue a notice that everyone is terminated in 90 days. They may give you more time. They may allow you to go work for the other entity that they are contracting with. But again, depending on your terms, they may not. 
So they may say, look, we're terminating all 20 of you hospitalists. And if you want, you can interview for the hiring entity, which would make sense, right? I mean, if I'm one of those large organizations that contracts with hospitals for providing physicians, if I'm one of those organizations, I want a physician who knows the facility, who understands the medical record system, who knows the specialist, who can understand it. And it's obviously a much easier transition if I hire a physician who's worked 100, 200, 500 shifts at a hospital to stay there and work for me, then bring somebody in, relocate them, give them all the brand new things, put them through orientation. It's much easier if I retain somebody. But again, depending on the terms of your contract, that may or may not happen. You may or may not be able to. You may have a non-compete that might be in effect if they terminate your contract to, you know, without cause hmm. okay? or don't renew your contract. If there's a non-compete, they may give you a letter that says, don't worry about the non-compete. Go work for the other entity if you'd want. They may assign all the contracts to them. You may have to apply for your position. So maybe they're offering, they have 20 spots and the new entity only wants 18. Now you're interviewing eight, 20 people for 18 spots. You know, So again, it's all, it, all is, it, it changes all the time. And every situation is completely different, of course, based on terms and, and, and even sometimes states or specialties. But again, how would that happen? Or how would that, how would that be handled by a physician? In one of many ways, depending on what each of the other more powerful organizations decide to do as a physician, sometimes it becomes the ping pong ball in these situations. I think you and I had done a podcast at one time about terminating contracts. And you said, you know, it's just as important to understand what you're getting into as to understand how you're going to get out of that contract yeah, you know, at XYZ sure. time in the future. So I think this probably comes into play. Just understanding yeah. what happens if your hospital lets you go. What are your options? Yeah. Or if they merge with somebody. True. Um, I mean, it's so important to know what, even if a hospital or any entity says, look, Tammy, here's your contract. It's not negotiable. Don't even have a review. You still need to know about the what could happen, right? What may happen. And of course, how would you word questions around that back to the hiring entity, even if you know they're not going to change it, mm -hmm. even if you know it's the same for everybody. Even if, you know, how would we at least be able to do due diligence around that to make sure we understand the full nature of the risk of the deal, which again could include selling to a private equity or could include merging with another practice. And we could go on and on for days, but maybe you work at a closed ICU and they bring on a separate facility with an open ICU and they need more bodies over there. So now you're working half your shifts at the closed ICU facility and half the shifts at the open ICU facility. And you don't want that. Or maybe they put you at a new facility and you work at nights because your contract doesn't say days only at this one facility. So again, it's all super important knowing that nobody can predict the future, that we plan as best we can, knowing that it's never going to be taking into account every situation that would be you know, overkill. But knowing that we're looking at all these things and at least providing good understanding and feedback on what to think through and what to know if this were to happen. Yeah, but... I truly, honestly think it's one of those things that's going to impact nearly every physician at some point of their life, them directly. Again, even if you're in a, even if someone's listening and says, John, I'm the orthopedic surgeon that's joining the private practice and they're not going to sell out. I'm going to be a partner. Okay, great. Doesn't mean that you won't be approached by somebody in the future as a partner and that you yourself won't have to go through this decision tree with your then colleagues and co-partners. So uh, again, having the ways to think through what's the benefits to us, what's the downside to us, you know, what's, knowing that every situation you should always look at all the potentials, you know, the goods and the bad. So I think every physician will be impacted at some form or another with, you know, the merger acquisitions, 
And of course, like you just said, knowing and understanding their contract for termination during that time is super important as well. Well, John, you're always a wealth of information. I appreciate you coming on the show. I love having you as a frequent guest here. Yeah, well, we appreciate it. And again, anything that we can do to share the knowledge that we've acquired over the last 12 years is super important to us. And, you know, we've got, as you know, great resources on our website. We've got free talks that we give all the time. People can call in or email in their questions to FR and, you know, we answer those. They can put them on. I think you guys have a social media page or mm-hmm. Facebook pages that we can answer yeah. questions on. And we're here to help with anything, whether they pay us or not. That's what we're here is just as a resource to the physicians. So I appreciate you allowing us on your show as a great resource to help share what we've learned. And I'm looking forward to future episodes and, you know, coming up with creative topics. So if anybody out there has, you know, new ideas that they want us to talk on or workshop together, I encourage them to send them in to you or to me. And, you know, if anybody wants a lecture or a talk at their residency program, we encourage them to reach out to us. And, you know, we think that there's lots of ways that we can continue to provide valuable insights. And I think this podcast is a wonderful way to do it in many different ways. Of course, my little portion is just on contracts, not much else. I know you guys do a lot more stuff here at Financial Residency to help the physicians. So. Well, if anyone has an idea for a podcast, either for me or for John, he's got coffee and contracts here at Financial Residency. You can just feel free to email me at Tammy at com, Or if you want to peruse his site, like he said, he has all kinds of informational sources and resources on the site. It's contractdiagnostics.com. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in again this week to Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. See you next week. If you're ready to start boosting your earning power with locums, head over to weatherbyhealthcare.com slash payday to learn more.